welcome to Sniper's Rest. Sniper's Rest is the last best rest stop in the here and there. The place between where you're coming from and where you're going. Welcome my friend. Hang on a second, let me wash my hands. There, that's better. Sorry about that. Just been out in the garden today harvesting some of our vegetables. I left Frank out there. He's playing with the birds in the bird bath. I am Sniper Shadow, and I reside here in Sniper's Rest as a guide and custodian to those who pass through the here and there. I visit the worlds within the multiverse often, but I am always here to guide and care for the travellers, such as yourself, that pass through the here and there. Please take a rest here before continuing on your journey. Today we continue a journey to the centre of the earth by Jules Verne. Finally, our explorers have found water. Onwards they go towards the centre. Let's find out what happens next, my friend. Chapter 24 Well said, old mole. Canst thou work in the ground so fast? By the next day, we had forgotten all of our sufferings. At first, I was wondering that I was no longer thirsty, and I was asking for the reason. Then the answer came in the murmuring of the stream at my feet. We breakfasted and drank this excellent water. I felt wonderfully stronger and decided quite upon pushing on. Why should not so firmly convince a man as my uncle, furnished with so industrious a guide as Hans, and accompanied by so determined a nephew as myself, go on to final success? Such were the magnificent plans which struggled for mastery within me. If it had been proposed to me to return to the summit of Snaffel, I should have indignantly declined. Most fortunately, all we had to do was descend. Let us start, I cried, awakening by my shouts the echo of the vault hollows of the earth. On Thursday at 8am we started afresh, the granite tunnel winding from side to side, Ernest passed unexpected turns and seemed almost to form a labyrinth. But on the whole, its direction seemed to be southeasterly. My uncle never ceased to consult his compass to keep account of the ground gone over. The gallery dipped down very little away from the horizontal, scarcely more than two inches in a fathom, and the stream ran gently murmuring at our feet. I compared it to a friendly genius guiding us underground, and caressed it with my hand, the soft naiad, whose confronting voice accompanied our steps. With my reviving spirits, these mythological notions seemed to come unbidden. As for my uncle, he was beginning to storm against the horizontal road. He loved nothing better than a vertical path, but this way seemed indefinitely prolonged, and instead of sliding along the hypotenuse, as we were now doing, he would willingly have dropped down the terrestrial radius. But there was no help for it, and as long as we were approaching the centre at all, we felt that we must not complain. From time to time, a steeper path appeared. Our naiad then began to tumble before us, with a hoarse murmur, and we went down with her to a greater depth. On the whole, that day and the next, we made considerable way horizontally, very little vertically. On Friday evening, the 10th of July, according to our calculations, 
We were thirty leagues southeast of Ravignac, and at least a depth of two leagues and a half. At our feet there now opened a frightful abyss. My uncle, however, was not to be daunted, and he clapped his hands at the steepness of the descent. Ha-ha! This will take us a long way, he cried, and without much difficulty, for the projections of the rock form quite a staircase. The ropes were so fastened by Hans as to guard against accident, and the descent commenced. I can hardly call it perilous, for I was beginning to be familiar with this kind of exercise. This well or abyss was a narrow cleft in the mass of the granite, called by geologists a fault, and caused by the unequal cooling of the globe of the earth. If it had at one time been a passage for eruptive matter thrown out by Snaffel, I could still not understand why no trace was left of its passage. We kept going down in a kind of winding staircase, which seemed to almost have been made by the hand of man. Every quarter of an hour we were obliged to halt, to take a necessary repose, and restore the actions of our limbs. We then sat down upon a fragment of rock, and we talked as we ate and drank from the stream. Of course, down this fault, the Hansbach fell in a cascade, and lost some of its volume, but there was enough and to spare to sate our firsts. Besides, when the inclined became more gentle, it would, of course, resume its peaceable course. At this moment, it reminded me of my worthy uncle, in his frequent fits of impatience and anger, while below it ran with the calmness of an Icelandic hunter. On the 6th and 7th of July, we kept following the spiral curves of this singular well, penetrating it in an actual distance no more than two leagues, but being carried to a depth of five leagues below the level of the sea. But on the 8th, about noon, the fault took, towards the southeast, a much gentler slope, one of about 45 degrees. Then the road became monotonously easy. It could not be otherwise, for there was no landscape to vary the stages of our journey. On Wednesday the 15th, we were seven leagues underground, and had travelled fifty leagues away from Snaffel. Although we were tired, our health was perfect, and the medicine chest had not yet had occasion to be opened. My uncle noted every hour the indications of the compass, the chronometer, the aneroid, and the thermometer, the very same which he had published in his scientific report of our journey. It was therefore not difficult to know exactly of our whereabouts. When he told me that we had gone fifty leagues horizontally, I could not repress an exclamation of astonishment at the thought that we had now long left Iceland behind us. "'What is the matter?' he cried. "'I was reflecting that if your calculations are correct, we are no longer under Iceland.' "'Do you think so?' "'I am not mistaken,' I said, and examining the map, I added, "'We have passed Cape Portland, and those fifty leagues bring us under the wide expanse of the ocean.' "'Under the sea,' my uncle repeated, rubbing his hands with delight. "'Can it be?' I said. "'Is the ocean spread above our heads?' "'Of course, Axel. What could be more natural? At Newcastle there are not coal mines extending this far under the sea?' It was all very well for the professor to call this so simple, 
but I could not feel quite easy at the thought that the boundless ocean was rolling over my head. And yet it mattered very little whether it was the plains and the mountains that covered our heads or the Atlantic waves, as long as we were arced over by solid granite. And besides, I was getting used to this idea, for the tunnel now running straight, now winding as capriciously in its inclines and in its turnings, but constantly preserving its south-easterly direction, and always running deeper, was gradually carrying us to the very depths indeed. Four days later, Saturday the 18th of July, in the evening, we arrived at a kind of vast grotto, and here my uncle paid Hans his weekly wages, and it was settled the next day Sunday should be a day of rest. Chapter 25 De Profundus I therefore awoke the next day, relieved from the preoccupation of an immediate start. Although we were the very deepest of known depths, there was something not unpleasant about it. And besides, we were beginning to get accustomed to this troglodyte life. I no longer thought of the sun, the moon, and the stars, trees, houses, and towns, nor any of those terrestrial superfluities, which are necessities of man who live upon the earth's surface. Being fossils, we looked upon all those things as mere jokes. The grotto was an immense apartment. Along its granite floor ran our faithful stream. At this distance from its spring, the water was scarcely tepid, and we drank it with pleasure. After breakfast, the professor gave a few hours to the arrangement of his daily notes. First, said he, I will make a calculation as to ascertain our exact position. I hope, after our return, to draw a map of our journey, which will be in reality a vertical section of the globe, containing the track of our expedition. That will be curious, uncle. But are your observations sufficiently accurate to enable you to do this correctly? Yes. I have everywhere observed the angles and the inclines. I am sure there is no error. Let us see where we are now. Take your compass and note the direction. I looked up and replied carefully. South, east, by east. Well, answered the professor, after a rapid calculation, I infer that we have gone eighty-five leagues since we started. Therefore we are under the mid-Atlantic. To be sure we are. And perhaps at this very moment there is a storm above, and ships over our heads are being rudely tossed about by the tempest. Quite probable. And the whales are lashing the roof of our prison with their tails. It may be, Axel, but they won't shake us here. But let us go back to our calculation. Here we are eighty-five leagues southeast of Safel. I reckon that we are at a depth of sixteen leagues. Sixteen leagues? I cried. No doubt. Why? This is the very limit assigned by science to the thickness of the crust of the earth. I don't deny it. And here, according to the law of increasing temperature, we ought to be at a heat of 2,732 Fahrenheit. So there should, my lad. And all of this solid granite ought to be running in fusion. You see that it is not so. 
and that often, as so often happens, facts come to overthrow theories. I am obliged to agree, but after all, it is surprising. What does the thermometer say? Twenty-seven and six-tenths degrees Celsius. Uh, Eighty-two Fahrenheit. Therefore, the savants are wrong by 2,705 degrees Fahrenheit, and the proportional increase is a mistake. Therefore, Humphrey Davy was right, and I am not wrong in following him. What do you say now? Uh, nothing. In truth, I had a good deal to say. I gave way in no respect to Davy's theory. And still, I held to the central heat, although I did not feel its effect. I preferred to admit in truth that this chimney of an extinct volcano, lined with lavas, which are non-conductors of heat, did not suffer the heat to pass through its walls. But without stopping to look up a few arguments, I simply took up our situation such as it was. Well, admitting all of your calculations to be quite correct, you must allow me to draw one rigid result therefrom. What is it? Speak freely. At the latitude of Iceland, where we now are, the radius of the earth, the distance from the centre to the surface, is about 1,583 leagues. Let us say in round numbers 1,600 leagues, or 4,800 miles. Out of 1,600 leads, we have only gone 12. So you say... And these twelves are at a cost of 85 leagues diagonally. Exactly so. In 20 days. Yes. Now 16 leagues are a hundredth part of the Earth's radius. At this rate we shall be 2,000 days or nearly five and a half years in getting to the centre. No answer was vouchsafed to this rational conclusion. Without reckoning, too, that if a very depth of 16 leagues can be attained only by a diagonal descent of 84, it follows that we must go 8,000 miles in a southeasterly direction, so that we shall emerge from some point in the Earth's circumference instead of getting to the centre. Confusion to all your figures, and all your hypotheses besides, shouted my uncle in a sudden rage. What is the basis of them all? How do you know that this passage does not run straight to our destination? Besides, there is a precedent. One man has done, another may do. I, I hope so, but I may be permitted. You shall have my leave to hold your tongue, Axel. But do not talk in that irrational way. I could see that the awful professor bursting through my uncle's skin, and I took a timely warning. Now look at your aneroid. What does it say? It says we are under considerable pressure. Very good. 
so you see that by going gradually down and getting accustomed to the density of the atmosphere, we don't suffer at all. Nothing, except a little pain in the ears. That's nothing, and you may get rid of it by that quick breathing whenever you feel the pain. Exactly so. I said, determined not to say a word that might cross my uncle's prejudices. There is even positively pleasure in living in this denser atmosphere. Have you observed how intense the sound is down here? No doubt that it is. A deaf man would soon learn to hear perfectly. But won't this density augment? Yes. According to a rather obscure law, it is well known that the weight of the body diminishes as fast as we descend. You know that at the surface of the globe that the weight is most sensibly felt and that at the centre there is no weight at all. I am aware of that, but tell me, will the air at last acquire the density of water? Of course, under a pressure of 710 atmospheres. And how lower down still? Lower down the density will still increase. But how shall we go down, then? Why, we must fill our pockets with stones. Well, indeed, my worthy uncle, you are never at a loss for an answer. I dared to venture no farther into the region of probabilities, for I might presently have stumbled upon an impossibility which would have brought the professor on the scene when he was not wanted. Still, it was evident that the air, under a pressure which might reach that of thousands of atmospheres, would at last reach the solid state, and then, even if our bodies could resist the strain, we should be stopped, and no reasonings would be able to get us on any farther. But I did not advance this argument. My uncle would have met it with his inevitable skinasum, a precedent which held no weight for me. For even if the journey of the learned Icelander were really attested, there was one very simple answer, that in the 16th century there was neither a barometer or an aneroid, and therefore Skunasim could not tell how far he had gone. But I kept this objection to myself, and waited the course of events. The rest of the day was passed in calculations and in conversation. I remained a steadfast adherent of the opinions of Professor Lindenbrock, and I envied the stolid indifference of Hans, who, without going into causes and effects, went on with his eyes shut wherever his destiny guided him. Chapter 26 The Worst Peril of All It must be confessed that hitherto things had not gone on so badly, and that I had small reason to complain. If our difficulties became no worse, we might hope to reach our end, and to what a height of scientific glory we should then attain. I had become quite a Lindenbrock in my reasonings. Seriously, I had. But would this state of things last in the strange place we had come to? Perhaps it might. For several days, steeper inclines, some even frightfully near to the perpendicular, brought us deeper and deeper into the mass of the interior of the earth. Some days we advanced nearer to the centre by a league and a half, or nearly two leagues. 
These were perilous descents in which the skill and marvellous coolness of Hans were invaluable to us. That unimpassioned Icelander devoted himself with incomprehensible deliberation, and thanks to him we crossed many a dangerous spot which we should never have cleared alone. But his habit of silence gained upon him day by day and was infecting us. External objects produced decided effects upon a brain. A man shut up between four walls soon loses the power to associate words and ideas together. How many prisoners in solitary confinement become idiots, if not mad, for a want of exercise of the thinking faculty? During the fortnight following our last conversation, no incident occurred worthy of being recorded, but I have good reason for remembering one very serious event which took place at this time, and of which I could scarcely now forget the smallest detail. By the 7th of August, our successive descents had brought us to a depth of 30 leagues. That is, for a space of 30 leagues, there were over our heads solid beds of rock, ocean, continent, and towns. We must have been 200 leagues from Iceland. On that day, the tunnel went down a gentle slope. I was ahead of the others. My uncle was carrying one of the Runikov's lamps, and I the other. I was examining the beds of granite. Suddenly, turning round, I observed that I was alone. Well, well, I thought. I have been going too fast, or Hans and my uncle have stopped on the way. Come, this won't do. I must join them. Fortunately, there is not much of an ascent. I retraced my steps. I walked for a quarter of an hour. I gazed into the darkness. I shouted. No reply. My voice was lost in the midst of the cavernous echoes, which alone replied to my call. I began to feel uneasy. A shudder ran through me. Calmly, I said out loud to myself. I am sure to find my companions again. There are not two roads. I was too far ahead. I will return. For half an hour I climbed up. I listened for a call, and in that dense atmosphere a voice could reach very far. But there was a dreary silence in all that long gallery. I stopped. I could not believe that I was lost. I was only bewildered for a time, not lost. I was sure I should find my way again. Come, I repeated. Since there is but one road, and they are on it, I must find them again. I have to ascend still. Unless, indeed, missing me and supposing me to be behind, they too should have gone back. But even in this case, I have only to make the greater haste. I shall find them. I am sure. I repeated these words in the fainter tones of a half-convinced man. Besides, to associate even such simple ideas with words and reason with them was a work of time. A doubt then seized upon me. Was I indeed in advance when we became separated? Yes, to be sure I was. Hans was after me, preceding my uncle. He had even stopped for a while to strap his baggage better over his shoulder. I could remember this little incident. It was at that very moment. I must have gone on. 
Besides, I thought, I have not a guarantee. I shall not lose my way. A clue in the labyrinth that cannot be broken. My faithful stream, I have but to trace it back, and I must come upon them. This conclusion revived my spirits, and I resolved to resume my march without loss of time. Then, how I blessed my uncle's foresight in preventing the hunter from stopping up a hole in the granite. This beneficent spring, after having satisfied our thirst on the road, would now be my guide among the windings of the terrestrial crust. Before starting afresh, I thought a wash would do me good. I stooped to bathe my face in the Hansbach. To my stupidification and utter dismay, my feet trod only the rough, dry granite. The stream was no longer at my feet. Chapter 27 Lost in the Bowels of the Earth To describe my despair would be impossible. No words could tell it. I was buried alive with the prospect before me of dying of hunger and thirst. Mechanically, I swept the grounds with my hands. How dry and hard these rocks seemed to me. But how had I left the course of the stream? For it was a terrible fact that it was no longer running at my side. Then I understood the reason of that fearful silence. When for the last time I had listened to hear if any sound from my companions could reach my ears. At that moment, when I left the right road, I had not noticed the absence of the stream. It is evident that at this moment... A deviation had presented itself before me, whilst Hans Bach, following the caprice of another incline, had gone with my companions away into unknown depths. How was I to return? There was not a trace of their footsteps, or of my own, for the foot left no mark upon the granite floor. I racked my brains for a solution of this impractical problem. One word described my position. Lost. Lost at an immeasurable depth. Thirty leagues of rock seemed to weigh upon my shoulders with a dreadful pressure. I felt crushed. I tried to carry back my ideas to things on the surface of the earth. I could scarcely succeed. Hamburg, the house in the Constrasi, my poor Grauben, all that busy world underneath which I was wandering about was passing in rapid confusion before my terrified memory. I could revive with vivid reality all the incidents of our voyage, Iceland, M. Fredriksen, Snaffel. I said to myself that if, in such a position as I was now in, I was fool enough to cling to one glimpse of hope, it would be madness, and that the best thing I could do was to despair. What human power could restore me to the light of the sun by rendering asunder the huge arcs of rock which united over my head, buttressing each other with impregnable strength? Who could place my feet on the right path and bring me back to my company? Oh, my uncle! burst from my lips in a tone of despair. It was my only word of reproach for I knew how much he must be suffering in seeking me, wherever he might be. When I saw myself thus far removed from all earthly help, 
I had recourse to heavenly succour. The remembrance of my childhood, the recollection of my mother, whom I had only known in my tender early years, came back to me, and I knelt in prayer, imploring for the divine help of which I was so little worthy. This return of trust in God's providence allayed the turbulence of my fears, and I was enabled to concentrate upon my situation all the force of my intelligence. I had three days' provisions with me, and my flask was full, but I could not remain alone for long. Should I go up or down? Up, of course, continually. I must thus arrive at the point where I had left the stream, that fatal turn in the road. With the stream at my feet, I might hope to regain the summit of Snaffel. Why had I not thought of that sooner? Here was evidently a chance of safety. The most pressing duty was to find out again the course of the Hansbach. I rose, and leaning upon my iron-pointed stick, I ascended the gallery. The slope was rather steep. I walked on without hope, but without indecision. Like a man who has made up his mind. For half an hour, I was met with no obstacle. I tried to recognize my way by the form of the tunnel, by the projections of certain rocks, by the deposition of fractures, but no peculiar sign appeared, and I soon saw that the gallery could not bring me back to the turning point. It came to an abrupt end. I struck against the impenetrable wall and fell down upon the rock. Unspeakable despair then seized upon me. I lay overwhelmed, aghast. My last hope was shattered against this granite wall. Lost in this labyrinth, whose windings crossed each other in all directions, it was no use to think of flight any longer. Here I must die the most dreadful of deaths. And, strange to say, the thought came across me that when some day my petrified remains should be found thirty leagues below the surface in the bowels of the earth the discovery might leave to grave scientific discussions. I tried to speak aloud, but hoarse sounds alone passed my dry lips. I panted for breath. In the midst of my agony, a new terror laid hold of me. In falling, my lamp had gone wrong. I could not set it right, and its light was paling and would soon disappear altogether. I gazed painfully upon the luminous current growing weaker and weaker in the wire coil. A dim procession of moving shadows seemed to slowly unfolding down the darkening hallways. I scarcely dared to shut my eyes for one moment for fear of losing the last glimmer of this precious light. Every instant it seemed about to vanish and the dense blackness to come rolling palpably upon me. One last trembling glimmer shot up feebly. I watched it in trembling and anxiety. I drank it in as if I could preserve it, concentrating upon the full power of my eyes as upon the very last sensation of light which they were ever to experience and in the next moment I lay heavy gloom of deep, thick, unfathomable darkness. A terrible cry of anguish burst from me. Upon the earth, in the midst of the darkest night, 
light never abates its functions altogether. It is still subtle and diffusive, but whatever little there may be, the eye still catches that little. Here and there was not an atom. The total darkness made me totally blind. Then I began to lose my head. I arose, my arms stretched out before me, attempting painfully to feel my way. I began running wildly, hurrying through an inextricable maze, still descending, still running through the substance of the earth's thick crust, a struggling denizen of geological faults, crying, shouting, yelling, soon bruised by contact with the dragged rocks, falling and rising again, bleeding, trying to drink the blood which covered my face, and even waiting some rocks to shatter my skull against. I shall never know whither my mad career took me. After the lapse of some hours, no doubt exhausted, I fell like a lifeless lump at the foot of the wall and lost all consciousness. Chapter 28 The Rescue in the Whispering Gallery When I returned to partial life, my face was wet with tears. How long that state of insensibility had lasted, I cannot say. I had no means now of taking account of time. Never was a solitude equal to this. Never had any living being been so utterly forsaken. After my fall, I had lost a good deal of blood. I felt it flowing over me. Ah, how happy I should have been, could I have died, and if death were not yet to be gone through. I would think no longer. I drove away every idea and conquered my grief. I rolled myself to the foot of the opposite wall. Already I was feeling the approach of another faint, and was hoping for complete annihilation, when a loud noise reached me. It was like a distant rumble of continuous thunder, and I could hear its sounding undulations rolling far away into the remote recesses of the abyss. Whence could this noise proceed? It must be from some phenomena proceeding in the great depths, amidst which I lay helpless. Was it an explosion of gas? Was it the fall of some mighty pillar of the globe? I listened still. I wanted to know if the noise would be repeated. Quarter of an hour passed away. Silence reigned in this gallery. I could not even hear the beating of my own heart. Suddenly my ear, resting by chance against the wall, caught or seemed to catch certain vague, indescribable, distant articulates of sounds as of words. This is a delusion, I thought. But it was not. Listening more attentively, I heard in reality a murmuring of voices, but my weakness prevented me from understanding what the voices said. Yet it was language. I was sure of it. For a moment I feared my words might be my own, brought back to me by the echo. Perhaps I had been crying out, unknown to myself. I closed my lips firmly and laid my ear against the wall again. Yes, 
truly someone is speaking those are words even a few feet from the wall i could hear distinctly i succeeded in catching uncertain strange indistinguishable words they came as if pronounced in low murmurs of whispers the word for yad was several times repeated in a tone of sympathy and sorrow help i cried with all my might help i listened i watched in the darkness for an answer a cry a mere breath of sound but nothing came some minutes passed a whole world of ideas had opened in my mind i thought that my weakened voice could never penetrate to my companions it is they i repeated what other men can be 30 leagues underground again i began to listen passing my ear over the wall from one place to another i found the point where the voices seemed to be best heard the word foyad returned again then the rolling thunder which had roused me from my lethargy no i said no it is not through such a mass the voices can be heard i am surrounded by granite walls the loudest explosion could never be heard here this noise comes along the gallery there must be here some remarkable exercise of acoustic laws i listened again this time yes this time i did distinctly hear my name pronounced across the wide interval it was my uncle's own voice he was talking to the guide and for yard is a danish word then i understood it all to make myself heard i must speak along this wall which would conduct the sound of my voice just as a wire conducts electricity but there was no time to lose if my companions moved but a few steps away the acoustic phenomenon would cease i therefore approached the wall and pronounced these words as clearly as possible uncle lindenbrock i waited with deepest anxiety sound does not travel with great velocity even increased density in air it has no effect upon its rate of traveling it is merely augments its intensity seconds which seemed ages passed away and at last the words reached me axel axel is it you yes yes i replied my boy where are you lost in the deepest darkness where is your lamp it is out and the stream it has disappeared axel axel take courage wait i am exhausted i can't answer speak to me courage resumed my uncle don't speak listen to me we have looked for you up the gallery and down the gallery could not find you i wept for you my poor boy at last supposing you were still on the hasbach we fired our guns our voices are audible to each other but our hands cannot touch don't despair axel it is a great thing we can hear each other during this time i had been reflecting a vague hope was returning to my heart there was one thing i must know to begin with i placed my lips close to the wall saying my uncle my boy came back to me after a few seconds 
we must know how far we are apart. That is easy. You have your chronometer? Yes. Well, take it. Pronounce my name. Noting exactly the second one you speak. I will repeat it as soon as it shall come to me. And you will observe the exact moment when you get my answer. Yes. And half the time between my call and your answer will exactly indicate which my voice will take in coming to you. Just so, my uncle. Are you ready? Yes. Now, attention, I am going to call your name. I put my ear to the wall, and as soon as the name Axel came, I replied immediately, Axel, and then waited. Forty seconds, said my uncle. Forty seconds between the two words, so the sound takes twenty seconds in coming. Now at the rate of 1,120 feet in a second, this is 22,400 feet or four miles and a quarter nearly. Four miles and a quarter, I murmured. It will soon be over, Axel. Must I go up or down? Down. For this reason, we are in a vast chamber with endless galleries. Yours must lead into it. For it seems as if all the clefts and fractures of the globe radiated around this vast cavern. So get up and begin walking. Walk on. Drag yourself along, if necessary. Slide down the steep places. At the end you will find us ready to receive you. Now begin. Moving. These words cheered me up. Goodbye, my uncle, I cried. I am going. There will be no more voices heard once I have started. So goodbye. Goodbye, Axel. Au revoir. These were the last words I heard. This wonderful underground conversation, carried on with a distance of four miles and a quarter between us, concluded with these words of hope. I thanked God from my heart, for it was he who had conducted me through those vast solitudes to the point where, alone of all others perhaps, the voices of my companions could have reached me. This acoustic effect is easily explained on scientific grounds. It arose from the concave form of the gallery and the conducting power of the rock. There are many examples of this propagation of sound which remain unheard in the intermediate space. I remember that a similar phenomenon had been observed in many places, among others on the internal surface of the gallery of the Dome of St Paul's in London, especially in the midst of the curious caverns among the quarries in Sacrus, the most wonderful of which is called Dionysus's ear. These remembrances came to mind, and clearly I saw, since my uncle's voice really reached me, there could be no obstacles between us. Following the direction by which the sound came, of course I should arrive in his pre presence, if my strength did not fail me. I therefore rose, rather dragged myself than walked. 
the slope was rapid, and I slid down. Soon the swiftness of the descent increased horribly and threatened to become a fall. I no longer had the strength to stop myself. Suddenly, there was no ground underneath me. I felt myself revolving in air, striking and rebounding against the craggy projections of a vertical gallery. Quite a well, my head struck against the corner of a sharp rock, and I became unconscious. That concludes our tale for this week, my friends. Please return next week, and we will continue our journey through A Journey to the Center of the Earth by Jules Verne. If you wish to rest here some more, please find a space that suits you. Whether you curl up by the fire, partake in some food and beverages in our kitchen, take a nap in one of our many rooms, or take a stroll around the garden, please know you are always welcome at Sniper's Rest, my friend. If you are continuing your journey, the multiverse has some interesting portals for you today. To the north, a conspiracy wells deep within the stone walls of this ancient castle. Flit around this creepy castle and uncover its vast secrets. To the west, when your best friend goes missing, you have to rise above and face a tough journey through a mess of your subconscious fears. Will you get your best friend back or go crazy trying? Don't crack up now. To the east, you assume the role of a former intelligence agent. When a series of unfortunate events creates a worldwide critical service failure, you need to find out what happened and stop it before it's too late. Welcome, hacker. And if you are making your own way out there, good luck, my friend, wherever you end up. Wherever you come from and wherever you're going, thank you for spending some time here with us at Sniper's Rest. Remember to take care of yourself, be kind to others, hydrate, take a moment to look out into the world and marvel at how incredible it all is. How incredible you are, friend. Until next time, please take care on your wave.